Shabbat Shalom. I want to remind everyone that on our website, under the tab resources, there's a lot of different things for you and your family uh, that will acquaint you and kind of help you as it relates to uh, our roots, the Messianic roots of our faith, our values, our traditions. Encourage you to go there and download those and learn about those. Uh, also, uh, we have a lot of dance videos too where you can learn all the steps, all the dances. Uh, and then from that point on, it's pretty easy going. So uh, I encourage you to visit our website and check those things out. All right, I am in part two of my sermon series, Jonah. And in my second part of my series, I've entitled it Jonah, the audacious prophet. And he is. Believe me, he is. Now, in part two of this series, we encounter the pride of Jonah. And we get to see why he is so unruly and angry and in the throes of suicidal ideation. If you read the story more than once, he's talking about taking his life. It's just like, it just stands out. It's so glaring. It's like, what? You're a prophet of God. You know, what is going on here? Now, in spite of all of his shortcomings, the good news is God loves him and uses him for his glory. We also discover the Jonah-Jesus connection. The story of Jonah is wrapped up and tied into the story of Jesus himself. It is this very story that reveals so much about Jesus and his mission. So I'm glad to uh, bring this to us today as we look at the twists and turns of the life of Jonah, the audacious prophet of God. So I'm not going to spend any time on last week. Uh, you can download that if you were not here and you want to come up to speed with what we're talking about. Uh, you can go back and look at that. But I want to jump, jump right into our message. Um, it starts in chapter 3. Uh, Jonah's dead. The whale has vomited him up on the beach. And there lies his dead corpse. And so uh, God speaks to him. The Hebrew word, kum, which means arise. It's a resurrection story. Jonah, who's dead, his corpse is on the beach, his soul is in Sheol, he's been crying out from the pit for God's mercy, and God relents. And after three days and three nights, commands the fish, give me back Jonah. He pitches Jonah's corpse up onto the beach, and God speaks, and his spirit comes back into him, and Jonah stands to his feet and says, I think I'll go to Nineveh after all. On second thought, right? So in verse 4, it says, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Underline that. This is a very important part of the text. It's the crux of why Jonah is so angry. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. He's the prophet of God. He's prophesying. 40 days and the city is going to be leveled. He doesn't say 40 days and it might be leveled. He doesn't say 40, 40 days and just maybe the city is going to be destroyed. What does he say? 
He says, it will be destroyed. Forty days it shall be overthrown. No qualifiers. Does that prophecy come to pass? Nope. It doesn't. Big failure. Yeah. We'll look at that in just a few moments. Verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Nineveh, this great metropolis, 120,000 plus souls, all pagans, goyim, alienated from God. And they turn in a mighty revival and are saved. It's amazing. From the least to the greatest, they put themselves in sackcloth and they begin to call out to the name of the Lord. What about Jonah's appearance? See, the story that we read is highly uh, edited or, or, or brought down to its bare minimum. All the stories in the Bible are. If, if the full length of the story was told, we'd have volumes and volumes of volumes that would comprise the Bible. And who could read all that, right? So these stories are boiled way down, and you've got to kind of read through the lines, okay? So here's Jonah. He's been three, three days and three nights in, in, in the fish's stomach. Um, you know, you know, what do you think's in the stomach of a big whale? A lot of digestive juices to break down whatever that whale ate, right? Methane gas, that's one of the, one of the, the, the gases that are present in the stomach of a whale. So you can imagine what that did to Jonah's appearance, don't you think? I mean, what do you think Jonah looked like? He's immediately in the city on the heels of being in the stomach of the well three days and three nights. Yeah, I bet he looked pretty messed up. I bet he had some skin problems at this point, right? Um, you know, some people point out that, that his appearance would have been really almost hard to even look at. And here he is, telling the city, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Do you think they asked him about his skin? Do you think when he's walking through the city and dialoguing with the people and prophesying, they're saying, man, what happened to you? Sure they would, right? They would have been saying, what, what happened to you? Do you think Jonah told his story? Oh, yeah. It's like the best story ever. I mean, would you not want to tell that story? Oh, man, I'm sure he said, yeah, God told me to come preach to you. I said, no way, you guys are a bunch of goy, you know, you're Gentiles. So I ran from God. He sent a storm. The men threw me overboard. God had this big whale swallow me whole. I died in the whale's belly, but I continued to cry out to God in Sheol. And he had mercy on me, gave me another chance. So here I am, repent. Why do you think the people believed in God? You know, it's the backdrop of the story. It's Jonah's life. It's Jonah's testimony. That's what gave him an audience. That's what caught their attention. And when he preached that and they believed what God had done, they realized we better straighten up or we're done, right? This is the backdrop uh, uh, of the story. It says the Ninevites believed in God and they responded. They turned from their wicked ways. They turned to God. They began to cry out to God. 
Every one of us has a story. In fact, we have multiple stories. Isn't that not true? We call them testimonies. What has God done for you? How did you get saved? We all got these great, incredible stories like Jonah. Share your story. Don't be a Jonah. Share your story, right? Share it for the glory of God. Help people connect and encounter God with your story. Yeah, very important. So Jonah tells a story, testifies, prophesies, and the whole entire city responds. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. What an amazing king, right? What an amazing king. Humbles himself in the sight of his people. Bows to the creator of the universe. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each man may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Oh God, give us leaders like this. May the, our leaders be like this leader, right? God has a plan to save the nations. God sent his son because he loved the world, not just the Jews, not just Israel, the nations. He's reclaiming the nations for himself. Oh, that this nation would wake up like Nineveh did. I worry about our nation. We talked about this downstairs. We talked about the story of Abraham. You ever heard God talking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So he begins this dialogue with God. Would you destroy the city if there's 50 righteous? You wouldn't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, would you? Far be it from you, O Lord. That's not who you are. God says, okay, I'll spare the city if there's 50. He says, what about if there's 45? And then he begins bringing that number down as God agrees over and over and over. Okay, if I find this many, I won't destroy it. All the way down to 10. I wonder what would happen if Abraham said five, two, one. I think God would have said, yeah, if there's one, I'll spare the city. Why? Because God wants to save, not destroy. The heart of God is to save and redeem, not judge and destroy. This is the compassion of our God. Nations, they rise and they fall based on their relationship to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think of the Ukraine, and, you know, this whole debacle that is happening in the Ukraine, which is actually touching every nation of our world, and it's just beginning. It's just beginning. I'm thinking, what, what, would, I, what would I do if I was a leader in the Ukraine? What would I do? I'd call all my people to get on their faces, come to fast and pray and cry out to the Lord because our God is the God of the impossible and he has always taken a few 
and overthrown the mighty. And that's going to be the answer in the end for the Ukraine. See, the nations rise and fall based on their relationship with the Lord God. These stories are bigger than what we think of. There's so many applications on so many levels. One of the things, I've said it over and over and over, one of the things, you know what our job is when we read? We need to read the story and say, oh, okay, so the story's written for me too. So Lord, by your Spirit, show me where I'm at in the story. Am I a Ninevite? Am I a Jonah? You know, who am I? Where do I find myself? And how do I apply the lessons learned in my life? God's word is a living word. Let it change your life. Okay, so they're repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And uh, it says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on the sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then it says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So the king, all the way down to the least of them, they repent. Why? Because maybe God will change his mind. Does God change his mind? I am the Lord thy God, I changeth not. Well, perhaps he'll change his mind anyway. We should repent. Well, the prophet said, yet 40 days, and we're going to be leveled. He didn't say, if we repent, he'll change his mind. It says, no, he's going to do this. The king says, no, 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 no. There is a chance that God will change his mind. Let's repent. The glory of God is in his loving kindness and mercy. God is love. It's not one of his attributes. It's who he is. God is love, and love covers a multitude of sin. You know, when you love someone, you overlook their sins. When you're angry at them, you dig them all up, and you magnify them. Isn't that true? It's the exact opposite of love. Well, if God's love, that tells us that he will be moved by our appeal to him. He loves us. And the king intuitively knows that if we humble ourselves as a nation, perhaps God will change his mind because I heard he's a God of compassion and mercy. So this is what he's banking on. Verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented. Underline that. This is a big deal in the biblical text. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What does that tell us? What does it mean God relented? It means God changed his mind concerning the calamity that he said was definitely coming within 40 days. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, not might be, will be. God changed his mind. Now, I know that messes with our theology. That's a big problem for, you know, theologians, even our traditions. But God did. And other translations actually bear this out. Let me give you the ASV, the Authorized Standard Version. And God saw their works. They turned from their evil way, 
and God repented. It means to turn the other direction, right? God repented of the evil which he would do unto them, and he did not do it. Let's go to another translation, the CEV. When God saw that the people had stopped doing evil things, he had pity and did not destroy them as he had planned. Again, a change of mind. The NRSV. When God saw what they had did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This translation, God changed his mind, follows 12 other translations that also translated exactly the same way. Because the force behind the Hebrew actually is conveying a change of heart, a change of mind. This is amazing. What this tells us is that most prophecy is conditional whether it's stated or not. That's a big principle in understanding the realm of the prophetic. Prophetic predictions are conditional. Most of them are conditional whether the condition is stated or not. Think of Moses and his generation. God says, go and tell my people these six things. And then God lists out the things he's going to do for them, including their deliverance, becoming uh, his people, going into the promised land. And he says, I, this, is what, this is what I'm promising to them. This is what I'm going to do for them. It's a prophecy given to his people in Egypt. Did it come to pass? No, not for those who received it and heard it. That generation died in the wilderness because that prophecy also was conditional even though the conditions were not stated. That should help us understand prophetic utterance. Help us to understand how to judge the prophets. People say all the time, well, you know, if the prophet speaks and it doesn't go to pass, he's a false prophet. Really? Well, that makes Jonah a false prophet, Jeremiah a false prophet. It makes a number of, of prophets false prophets. It's far more complicated than that. Back to the story, Jonah, chapter 4 and verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. So here's Jonah. He notes that God has changed his mind. He is not only displeased, he's angry. And why is he angry? Why does he even care, right? Here are the two main reasons that Jonah is fuming. First reason, Hebrew pride. Later on, we, we can call it Jewish pride. If you want to extend that, you can call it ethnic pride because it's not unique to any one ethnicity, okay? Hebrew pride. They're a bunch of goy, Gentiles. What business do you have saving them? They're non-Hebrews, non-chosen, no covenant standing. I thought salvation was for the covenant people of God, not the goyim. Why are you involving yourself with these other nations anyway, right? Only Israel matters. That's Hebrew pride or Jewish pride. God is the God of all flesh, not just the Jews. 
And we love the Jews. We're part of the Jews. We're a part of Israel. But what happens, especially up into the first century, is the idea that God's only working with Israel, that he has no concern for the, for the Gentiles. And this, of course, is seen all the way back in earlier stories, like the one we're just reading here. The idea behind this text is God loves and cares for all the nations. Don't make the mistake because he's working with Israel initially that he only cares about Israel. Just because he divorced himself from all the nations at Babel and chose Israel to be his own nation doesn't mean he would not reclaim the nations in the end. In fact, that was promised to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. It was promised to Messiah in Psalm 2. They would inherit all of the nations. God's not just saving Israel. He's saving the whole world. Jesus isn't just the Savior of Israel. He's the Savior of the whole world. Think about that today, right? Today, we might say only Americans matter. Think of the Ukraine. The Ukraine is probably the most corrupt part of the EU that's been stated by the EU more than once. Ah, they're just a corrupt nation. It's a big, big corrupt Russia that's beating up on a little but very corrupt Ukraine, right? Ukraine is the most corrupt part of the EU. Let them defend their own land, their own wives, and their own children. Is that true? The story of Jonah says, God's concerned about all the nations, especially the corrupt ones. Nineveh, who would ever have guessed that God would be interested in saving Nineveh? Second reason that Jonah is so beside himself is that God changed his mind, and now Jonah's reputation takes a hit, Right? We read this last week. I'm going to read it again. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. And if you say to yourself, how can we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken to him, the prophet? Whenever what the prophet spoke in the name of Yahweh, the thing does not take place and does not come about. That is the thing that Yahweh has not spoken to him. Presumptuously, the prophet spoke it. You shall not fear, or in the Hebrew, revere, you shall not revere that prophet. Jonah's saying, you know what? I prophesied and I said, this is coming. You changed your mind. I look presumptuous. Your reputation's intact. Mine's taking a hit. Is that why you sent me to be the bad cop so you could be the good cop? You see Jonah's angst here? I, can you understand it? Do you think he has a little bit of a basis for this beef? This is probably not the first time that this has happened to Jonah. As you slow down and read the story and look into what he's angry about, it's obvious that this has happened before to Jonah. It's not his first prophecy tour, right? Prophetic tour. This isn't the first time he has spoken on behalf of the Lord. So Jonah's like, no, I cannot do this anymore. I prophesy, you change your mind, I just look presumptuous. 
over and over and over. It's a lousy call that you've put on my life. So Jonah prays. It says in verse 2 of chapter 4, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? See, we don't got that part of the story. But there's a dialogue between him and the Lord that's going on that's unrecorded back earlier on before he even jumps on that ship. Jonah said, you, you, you've got this assignment. You want me to go and prophesy. I don't want to go, Lord. Pick someone else. No, Jonah, it's you. No, there's other prophets. No, I want you, Jonah, to go. I'm not going to go, Lord. I've done this before. I'll prophesy. You're going to change your mind because that's what you do. And then my reputation takes another hit. So he jumps on a ship and goes the exact opposite direction to Tarshish. God could have picked another prophet. God's saying, no, I picked you, Jonah. I'm the Lord God, not you yourself. I'm calling the shots, not you yourself, Mr. Big Britches. Got a big fish for you. You ever been to a fish fry? It's the opposite. This one's going to be a little bit different, right? Therefore, in order to forestall this, Jonah says, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Your bark is worse than your bite. I'm going to go and make this big threat and big warning, and you're not going to follow through. Because you're kind-hearted. You're merciful. At the first hint of repentance, you're like over it already. Is that not the glory of God? Is, is that not the kind of God you would want to serve? A God that's quick to forgive and slow to anger? This is the glory of our God. Jonah's just filled with pride. He's filled with arrogance. He's thinking of his own name. He can't get past the bigger picture, the redemption of sinners. I think God is not letting Jonah off the hook and sends him to hell and back because he loves Jonah. And he wants Jonah to understand what it means to be merciful and compassionate. So Jonah, I got a hellhole for you, literally. The, the trauma, and, and just think, the trauma of the seas and being in the seas and drowning, only to have that like ramped up in the terror of a big sea creature eating you. And then when you have a few minutes, you're crying out and God doesn't respond and now you're dead and your soul departs and goes into Sheol, the pit, hell, where you continue to cry out. Now, if God was created in the image of Jonah, we wouldn't have our story today because Jonah wouldn't have found mercy because his God has no mercy. But the God of Jonah is filled with compassion, loving kindness, and mercy. And when Jonah cries out, God relents and raises him back from the dead and gives them a second chance 
probably like his 40th chance. It's not the first mountain he's been around with Jonah. As I said earlier, Jonah's the prophet of God. He's been prophesying this is not his first, first rodeo, so to speak. But this is the glory of God, that God does change his mind concerning prophetic words of judgment when people repent. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. That's called suicidal ideation. When you begin to think about, I would rather be dead than alive. Yeah. Jonah, what are you doing? What is up with you? These character flaws are so alarming. You know, I mean, what is going on with you? You would rather die? I mean, you were just dead. And you were crying out to be alive, and now you're alive, and you want to be dead again. Jonah's full of himself. He's the audacious prophet of God. This is such arrogance, right? Think about it. God's response is just as compassionate as he was to the Ninevites. The Lord says to Jonah in the next verse, Do you have good reason to be angry? What a question. What a question. I'm so glad he is God. If you were God or I were God, we probably would have just backhanded him. Right back into Sheol. Pading, you know. I mean, this guy's like, I can't believe it, right? But God is gracious. He says, Jonah, why are you so angry, right? What is going on? Let's talk about this. Do you have good reason to be angry? Talk to me, Jonah. What does Jonah do? What does the audacious prophet do? It says in verse 5, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Yeah. Jonah. God saying, Jonah, talk to me. Let's, let's work through this conflict, this anger. Jonah, what does he do? He just turns away in silence, refuses to talk, and goes and pouts outside the city, hoping that God will change his mind again because he's just wanting the city in flames. Verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Wow. Journalist talk. I'm not talking. I'm not talking. I don't have to talk. I'm the audacious prophet. You know, I'll do what I want to do. I'm, I'm a son, and I disagree with you, Dad, and you know what? You want to talk? I don't want to talk. I'm going to go out here and pout. So God does something that's extremely kind-hearted. And Jonah appreciates it. And the next day, God takes it away. And then he intensifies his pain. Yeah. 
Jonah's beside himself, wanting to die again. Back where he was when he walked away from God the first time. And God's saying, all right, you ready to talk now? You know, we're not going to win in our battles with the Lord. You can be angry at God, but you're not going to win that battle. When we're angry with God, the best thing we can do is dialogue with him. Let's work through that with him. We can't run from him. The story of Jonah running from God did not bode well for him. It won't bode well for us either. So Jonah, back in this place, is now ready to talk. 9 through 11. And then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Again, real similar to the first question where he had left off. Do you have good reason to be angry about the, about the plants? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Really? Over a plant? Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. What he's saying is, Jonah, you showed more compassion for this plant that came up and then withered than you have for people, multitudes of people, care more about a plant than a human being? Jonah, what's going on with you? What happened to you? You show more care and concern for a plant that gave you brief satisfaction, and yet you have no concern for the thousands and thousands of souls in this city. Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. We talked about this in our Torah class uh, last week. The animals are living souls, too. When God created Adam from the dust of the earth and formed him and breathed into him, it says that Adam became a living creature, a living soul. God says the same thing about the animals, that they too are living souls. They have mind, will, emotions, right? They care for their young. They relate to us. You care more about a plant than you do human beings and the animal kingdom? Your priorities are completely upside down. Completely. Jonah's arrogance in this story is seen by all. He's full of himself. No wonder God appointed the great sea creature to swallow him up. Pride goeth before a fall. Pride goeth before a fall. I've been there a couple times in my life. God is a creator. He's all about ideation. He knows how to do things that have never been done before. That's why you don't want to be proud and arrogant. Because he'll do things like appoint whales to eat you. Or tiny little worms to dig down your tree. You know, whatever. I mean, he's just got he's got he's got an endless, an endless way of humoring himself as he disciplines the children that he loves, right? 
the audacious prophet Jonah got what he much deserved, death. And yet God was quick to respond in mercy and change his mind concerning Jonah's fate in Sheol after three days and three nights. Then he resurrects him from the dead and gives him another chance. And it's from that point that Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preached to the city yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they were repented and they were saved. This is the story of Jonah, the audacious prophet of God. So great is this story that it becomes the backdrop of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Let's take a quick look at Jesus and Jonah and their connection. Jonah's resurrection becomes a prophetic sign of the Messiah. The sign of Jonah is the number one symbol among early followers of Jesus. The sign of the fish, the fish became a symbol to communicate the story of Jonah. And that became the number one symbol for Christianity in the first century. Why? Matthew 12, verse 38 through 42. The son of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. One sign. That's all you get. You get one sign. This is the sign of Jesus' Messiahship. And what was the sign of Jonah? What is the sign? We always say three days and three nights. That's, that's the number one most popular answer, three days and three nights. It's not. That's a secondary issue. The sign of Jonah is death and resurrection. That's why it's the symbol of Messiah. Because he's saying, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. That's the Jonah connection with Jesus. The length of time is a secondary issue. The primary issue is death and resurrection. Jonah, his story is the story of resurrection. It's a resurrection story. For just as Jonah, verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And this is why I said early on, Jonah was not kept alive in the belly of the whale. If he did, what would that communicate about the Messiah? The Messiah would be in the grave three days and three nights, but he wasn't really dead. God kept him alive there too, just like he kept Jonah alive in the belly of the whale, which means there's no resurrection story, which is not a very big miracle in relationship to resurrection, right? See, the story is, is that he died in the belly of the whale and went to Sheol. That's exactly what it says in Jonah chapter 2. And that makes sense because that becomes the very precursor to the story of Jesus. He's going to die. He will die. His body will go to the grave three days and three nights while his soul is in Sheol. He descends into Hades and takes the keys of the power of death away from Satan. This is the Jonah-Jesus connection. 
Then the men of, men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Messiah. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, all of these were, were types and shadows of me, the coming one. I too, like Jonah, will die and rise again. This is the very proof of my Messiahship. And on the heels of Jonah's resurrection, what did he do? He gets up and he goes and preaches to the Gentiles in Nineveh. And the vast majority of them get saved. This too reveals the mission of Jesus. When Jesus first comes, what does he say to his disciples? Go out, preach the gospel to all of Israel, and don't go to the Gentiles. Stay away from them, for I've come to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah, catch this. Ready? Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. This is a post-resurrection story. Jesus has risen from the dead. This is like his final encounter, one of his final uh, meetings with his disciples before he ascends into the heavenlies. But the 11 disciples proceeded, proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of Israel. Make disciples of the chosen people. Make disciples of the Jews. No. He said something that was so shocking in the ears of his disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's a game changer. That's a shift in his mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'd like to just kind of paraphrase this, change it up a little bit, okay? This is my kind of rendition Go, therefore, and make disciples of Nineveh, right? Just like Jonah went to the Gentiles that he didn't want to go to because they're Gentiles. God was communicating, I love the Gentiles. I'm saving them too. So Jesus, like Jonah, on the heels of his own resurrection, says to his disciples, now go. Go to the nations too, the Gentiles, because I'm saving them as well as the Jews to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. In the end, just like Pharaoh, the whole world is going to know that the God of Israel is full of compassion and loving kindness and mercy. He's a redeeming God. He's a Savior. He has a plan to save whosoever will. That's who he is. So an application application we are part of his kingdom 
That means we share in his mission. His mission is our mission. You and I, we're supposed to go out and tell our stories to our friends and family. Tell them our story of how we got saved and lead people into this great kingdom of God, a redemption, a love, a forgiveness that can only be experienced. Share the gospel. That's our job. That's our mission. That's his mission. Help others. Do acts of kindness. And not only for your neighbor, not only for your neighbor, but also for your neighboring countries. Jesus is a globalist. And his mission is a global mission of justice, redemption, peace, and prosperity. So let's do our part with all that is within us. All right. We got time for questions and answers. I love this part when I'm done early. So if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to make, um, Elliot, would you run this mic down? Uh, we'll let you do that. Make sure that your comment or question relates specifically to my material today. Hold it closer. That's fine. So my question was about Jonah, and I think we spoke about this a little bit the other day, but that, so and your understanding is that Jonah's main concern is that he was going to look like a false prophet and not that the Most High was going to repent and not punish uh, Nineveh. It is so, yeah, so there's two reasons. One is he's, he's not happy that God's trying to like work with other people than Israel. That, that's part of his problem. Number two is... Um, he doesn't like to say God's going to do something on God's behalf because he knows God's going to not do it. And then he just looks like, he just doesn't, you know, when you go and say, on behalf of so-and-so, they said this is going to happen, but then he changes his mind and it doesn't happen. I, I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of scenario, but it's, it's unsettling because it just makes you look like you don't really know what you're saying or you don't have any integrity or whatever. And, and so that's part of Jonah's angst with God is, You've done this before, and I don't want to do it anymore. And so, yeah, I, I would say that. It, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for not challenging me on that. I'm on camera, man. Go easy. Okay. Someone else? Question over here? We got just a few minutes. Keep your questions short and sweet. I anticipate a possible objection of looking at the story of Jonah in comparison to Jesus' ministry in that uh, Jonah's story right before he, he got swallowed up by the well doesn't exactly match because Jonah fled from God, and uh, as far as we know, Jesus did not. Yeah, so whenever you have like an analogy, it's just meant to connect the part that's analogous, not every part of that person's life or story. Uh, that's just just the way it is. So the connection is only where it overlaps, and where it doesn't, it doesn't. So it's analogous only to Jonah being the prophet of God and on the heels of resurrection going to the Gentiles. 
Jesus too, on the heels of resurrection, goes to the Gentiles. And that was a pretty shocking thing within the Jewish world, which had basically came to the place where God loves us, we're the chosen people, he's only concerned about us. He's not working with the nations. That was very unsettling for both uh, Jonah and then the disciples of Jesus. And so there is some analogy to be drawn between Jonah and Jesus, even though there's a lot of discontinuity between their lives for sure. So, good. Someone else? Final question? Up front. Come up front. Well, we'll do two questions. We'll do two. You can be our last one. So you said the sign of Jonah is today understood to be the time reference of three days and three nights. That's the popular view. The popular view is that the sign of Jonah is in reference to the timeline of three days and three nights, not death and resurrection. And the reason it's not death and resurrection is because we've already been sold this idea that he didn't really die anyway. The miracle was he kept him alive in the belly of the whale, okay. which then, then ruins the connection with Jesus being in the grave dead. Mm-hmm. versus being in the, in the grave just sleeping and recovering from the brutality of the crucifixion. Yeah. But so fo- follow up. At the time when Jesus said that, as you pointed out in Matthew 12, would they have understood it in regards to how he meant it or how we understand it today or the more popular view of looking at the sign of Jonah today? Does that make sense? I th- yes. I think, I think they would have understood it as resurrection. Um, the timeline is, is uh, a secondary issue, uh, important but secondary. Uh, but they would have understood that as there's something in this Jonah connection of his death and resurrection that's going to be true of Jesus too. And so that's what they would have heard. So it was very clear what he meant when he said that to them at yes. the time. Okay. Yes. They, they, it was very clear to them that jo- Jonah died and rose from the dead by the hand of God, and that's, that's going to somehow happen to Jesus. Yes, that's what they would have understood. Cool. And, and if it did, if it did, a whole lot of people are going to get saved at that point. A whole lot of people, just like Nineveh, are going to come crashing into the kingdom because they realize, wow, it happened just like Jesus said. All right, up front. Come on all the way up front, Elliot. And she's sitting right in the second row here. Raise your hand. He'll get you the, the thing. I have, a, I have a, a booklet up front here, three days and three nights. How long is three days and three nights? It's not what you think. We always think 72 hours because we, we kind of count time in terms of hours and minutes. The Jews didn't do that, okay? They spoke in terms of days, a calendar day. And so um, the time period is not exactly what you think. I know people say all the time, Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon, dead, buried in the grave, up on Sunday morning. That is not three days and three nights. You can't get three days and three nights. No, you can't get 72 hours. But three days and three nights, the way Jews count time, that was three days and three nights. So you can come up afterwards if you'd like to get a um, copy of this. I have a bunch up front. Just come up front and you can have a copy and that'll help you with the uh, three days and three nights. Good, final question. Yes, thank you. Um, so you mentioned how Jonah, as well as other prophets like Jeremiah, you know, experienced things where God gave them a prophecy of, you know, destruction of someone, and then, you know, they, they end up repenting, and so God relents, he changes his mind because of his compassion. So can you explain, what do you think Jonah's misinterpretation is, uh, was of Deuteronomy 18.22, or how are we to interpret that in light of these prophecies that don't come true? Right. So so when you go to to the the texts that deal with prophets and how to judge a prophet. 
there's, there's quite a few texts. There's a lot said about that. The one in Deuteronomy that I referenced in the text uh, says if a, if a prophet speaks and it doesn't come to pass, it's because he didn't speak the word of the Lord. He was presumptuous. That's what it looks like Jonah did. Now, that's not what Jonah did, but it looks like that. And because we're all just people, there's people back in the day that would have took just that passage and not the other passages that would give them balance in terms of how to view a prophet. They would have just ran with that one alone. And they would have just been, you know, laying that on Jonah like we do on prophets today. You know, we, you know, some prophet, you know, look at all the prophets that said Trump's going to be in, uh, uh, he's going to be a two-term uh, president. I mean, strong prophetic words, lengthy ones by many, many, many good, good, solid prophets. You know, they prophesied that. Then everyone's going, false prophet, false prophet. I'm saying, you know what? You don't understand the nature of prophecy and all the conditions that are not even stated. You need to slow up because you judge a prophet by his fruit, not by his words. False prophets can give true predictive words that come to pass. And true prophets can give words that don't come to pass. Be very slow how you judge people, right? And by the way, you know the biggest thing that people get wrong in the prophetic? Timing issues. Timing issues. What's everyone going to do if Trump gets back in in 2026, is it? 2024, yeah. Can you imagine? You can, all those rocks that, that you threw at the so-called false prophets, they're going to pick up and say, back at you. Yeah, take that one. He's a two-term president. We just didn't realize it wouldn't be back-to-back or concurrent, right? So that's an aside. I'm out of time. That's why I went there because I'm just, you know, when I get out of time, I'm just like, politics, okay. But getting back to this, Jonah Jonah would have been feeling like, you know, my name's being drugged through the mud over and over and over because I say things that are going to come to pass by the word of the Lord and you change your mind and you don't do it. You don't fulfill what you said you were going to do. And that's why I'm angry at you. Um, so does that yes. answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you, everyone. Shabbat shalom.